This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Delighted to be back recording with Patrick Barkley for another Football CFB Legends special. We've talked about Sir Matt Busby, the man who built a football club. We've also mm. talked about the life and times of Herbert Chapman, a man who was really a revolutionary in football managerial terms when you go back through the eras. Today we're mm. talking about a modern managerial phenomenon. Some will say his sparkle is, is on the wane, but we, we can discuss that throughout the show. That man is going to be Jose Mourinho. Um, Patrick, you wrote a book many years ago called The Anatomy of a Winner. It was yeah. a book that was very highly regarded um, at the time. Josie's career yeah. obviously has taken him to different parts of the world since then, but mm. it'll be interesting to discuss him today. And the first main thing I want to ask you about in regards to Josie is his childhood and, and how his love of football was formed. Mm. Well, he was, was born into football, really, um, because um, he was born in... Uh, January 1963 and um, at that time he was born in uh, Setubal uh, the little port relatively small port um, 20 miles south of Lisbon and at that time Benfica of Lisbon were uh, the best team in Europe bear in mind 1963 um, Real Madrid sort of peaked with the Hamden Park 7-3 thrashing of Eintracht Frankfurt and, and it was Benfica who took over from Real Madrid as the best team in Europe and uh, they when Jose was born they had won two consecutive European Cups and this was the Benfica of uh, Eusebio Coluna Aguas um, but you know Eusebio was the icon of the team and uh, it was interesting, actually, um, to reflect that this was probably the first, uh, the Benfica and Portugal were probably the two first um, uh, European clubs to routinely have plenty of black players because the, the players came from the Portuguese colonies, Mozambique, Angola principally, and, uh, and qualified thereby for Portugal. So it's interesting that he, he, the first footballers he would have seen would have included white players, black players, uh, in the same way as we, we do now. And uh, But anyway, yes, he was born and born right into football because his dad was a goalkeeper, professional footballer, goalkeeper for... Uh, trying to remember which these two main clubs I can't remember which he was at when Jose was born but the two biggest clubs he played for were Vittorio of Setubal and Belenenses uh, the sort of third force in in Lisbon after uh, Benfica and Sporting uh, and Jose's dad was was a decent goalkeeper um, played once as a sub for Portugal eight minutes against the Republic of Ireland in Brazil, in a friendly, and um, but but you know, obviously a decent 
decent keeper and he very much brought his son into the fold you know um Jose was nine when uh Felix the father the goalkeeper father uh won his one and only cap and uh, really if uh even then he'd been taken to matches um he'd been taken to training he would retrieve the balls from behind the goal after uh, you know during training and so on so he was just steeped in football right from right from the start but it was a it was a, not a typical footballing background because in those days you know almost footballers were in, almost entirely working class heroes and uh Jose was born into the middle class um you know his his dad um, obviously was reasonably well paid as a professional footballer but he they lived in the house in a great big house owned by his great uncle uh who was the owner of um, sardine factory sardine canneries in um, in Setubal and uh, on the Algarve as well so obviously very well to do and 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 so J jose and his sister had had a pretty good upbringing um plenty of horse riding in Jose's case loads of football um in fact he his his first pal that he played football with was a a, a servant uh, a member of the staff at the house who uh, liked his football and Jose picked up on that so this uh, this guy when he was supposed to be washing the car or something like that instead he'd be out shooting for Jose to save or saving shots that Jose was firing in. So it was a very much, yeah, it was a very comfortable way of life, but very much a, a football-influenced way of life that he had. And in terms of that love of football, a lot of people talk about the fact that he never played football himself at the very no. highest level. But no. as you've said, Rightly, he, he always had a passion for football because he was surrounded by it, as you yeah. mentioned, with his father. And, and even though he didn't play himself at the very highest level, having his father playing international football and playing top flight football in mm. Portugal must mm. have been a great help to him. Yeah, absolutely. And being friendly with the players. Um, plus, as soon as he was old enough, um, his dad, when his dad retired as a player, he immediately became a coach. Um, and I think his first club, Felix's first club, was a third division club. And uh, Jose would do little bits of work around the club. Uh, he, he was put in charge of the ball boys. Now, this was not um, without its technical aspects because of course the ball boys were used to pass messages to the players they weren't just there to, to collect the balls and so Jose was in charge of that you know so his dad would be sitting on the bench and his dad would say um next time the ball goes out get the ball boy to tell our center half to stay closer together you know or, or something like that and uh, whether he actually did the you know, when it, it telling the ball boys to chuck it on quickly when we were on the attack and chuck it on slowly when they're on the attack. Uh, there's no record of whether he did that, but knowing Jose, um, it's uh, fairly reasonable to assume that a bit of, uh, <laughs> bit of that was involved, yeah. 
Absolutely. And, and the thing that interests me about him is he always wanted to study the game and study aspects mm. of football. Um, mm. He was someone who focused on sport. He was expected to enroll in a business school. His mother was quite passionate about that, but yeah, that's right. he decided that, that he wanted to go down the sports route. He started to study sports science and then coaching really became to the forefront. He, he, he was that's attending right. courses run by the FA in England and the SFA and, and he was Maybe someone... They- Mainly the SFA, Callum, because when he's first... Sorry, I'm, I'm interrupting you. You were going to say? I was just saying mainly, as you say, by the the FA and the SFA, which is interesting with that relationship that he has with, with British football. Oh, yes. Well, it, it, it he was very much influenced by his time in Scotland. He took his first and second part of his uh, UEFA licence in Scotland, but it was separated by 12 years. He went as a rookie... Um, basically, uh, uh, you know, just out of university to get his first part in 1988. And he remembers being very impressed that uh, the Scotland team manager, Andy Roxburgh, you know, ran the course. He was told, he was advised to take the English one. A lot of, lot of people, uh, sorry, the Scottish one. Uh, it, the Scottish one, certainly in those days, has a much higher reputation than the English one. Uh, the English have, have worked very hard on it. Um, but the coaching qualifications in Scotland were, I, I don't know if they were world famous, but they were certainly famous all over Europe. And, and in Portugal, he was advised, go to Scotland. That's, that's, that's where you'll get it. And sure enough, when he went there, you know, there were top, guys. Andy Roxburgh was in charge of the course. Uh, and Andy, I think, was might have been national team manager at the time. I think he was. Um, and uh, I'm sure Craig would have been around somewhere. Um, I know that Paul Sturrock was an assessor. So, you know, there were, there were top guys. And uh, then his second part, he went back for the second part, uh, in 2000, as late as that, he'd already been working. So he had a bit of a reputation then. He wasn't an unknown. He wasn't just a school teacher from Lisbon. He was, um, you know, people knew he'd worked with Bobby Robson and he had a, an aura to match, you know. He had worked with Barcelona and stuff like that. And, and uh, um, yeah, they, uh, uh, two of the people who were, were with him on the course were Tosh McKinley, who... Everybody will know up in Scotland. I certainly do because he played for Dundee. Um, uh, Gary Bollen, you know, uh, good people who've gone on to have uh, have uh, good careers, and they were they were with Jose on the course. And in fact, Josh McKinley said that uh, he met him many years later at Celtic Park. Mourinho had gone to Celtic Park for some reason, and. Um, and uh, you know, he said, "Hello, Tosh. How are you?" You know, I mean, he just remembered. Remembered. Uh, Tosh was doing um, some kind of corporate hospitality, something like that, at Parkhead, and he remembered him. But uh, anyway, we're we're moving moving on ahead. But he did, yes, he did these two courses, uh, both in in Scotland. Um, but. Uh, yeah, he, he and and Andy Roxburgh did remember an awful lot of them didn't remember him from the first course, you know, because you know why would they? He was just a school teacher, but he, he, even then, you you mentioned his going, his being a school teacher, but always being around football. When he taught at a school, he used to um, 
you encourage the kids for football, not just during school hours. I mean, I met a boy who was, uh, who was a man who had been a boy and had been in Jose's class at school in Setubal. And he said, you could always go to his house if you wanted any help, especially if you were, if, if it was about football, you know, you, you, he would give you all the advice in the world and he'd, he'd take an interest in, uh, in, in every kid and give them tips and all that kind of stuff. But he was already on the on the road to coaching then, still working with, with his father, with his father, for his friend, a great former sporting centre forward called Manuel Fernandez. And, uh, uh, you know, so he was already, uh, he taught the under 16s at Vittoria Setubal. You know, it was, it was, it was, everything was blending into one by now. And, um, the other thing that needs to be mentioned is that there was a, a preparation, not only for a coaching career in Portugal, but for his international development, because he went, when he went to the sports university in, or even when he was at school, actually, he began to use his ling linguistic skills because the, <clears throat> I forgot to mention that when Jose was a young teenager, the Portuguese revolution took place. And which was very bad news for his great uncle, by the way, because a lot of rich people, apparently the the, canner, the canning factories were appropriated by the new democratic government. Uh, so it was not very good for the uncle, but it was great for Jose because the new democratic uh, government after Salazar's dictatorship, um, they decided the way to build up Portugal is through education, 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 and, and to prepare people for a European, a pan-European future. And um, I can remember, but younger people might be interested, I can remember when Portugal was considered a third world, world country, you know, it was considered, um, you know, should they be allowed into the European Union and so on. But the, the new democratic socialist, you know, social democrat government believed in education and um, so you had to have two languages that weren't Portuguese at school. So he left school with, I think they were English and French or English and Spanish, perhaps. But by the time he'd finished university, the sports university, he had English, apart from Portuguese, English, Spanish, Italian and French. So, it, it, you know, and, and he was such a linguist that, that when later he went to Barcelona with Bobby Robson, uh, he quickly picked up on the fact that learning that his Spanish would not be enough. And he very quickly picked up Catalan as well, so that he could speak to players like Pep Guardiola in the language they preferred. And, and just on his relationship and his workings with Sir Bobby Robson, a lot of people um, who are maybe younger listening to this will will look at Josie Mourinho and they will look at the, the first Chelsea spell as when he was ingrained with English yeah. football. But yeah. Sir Bobby Robson played a massive part in his career. The mutual yeah. respect between both men was very clear for all to see. And, and in the, the film about Sir Bobby, um, Josie speaks very highly about yeah. the fact that he was a translator to begin with, but very, very quickly and well, gradually also, he was given more and more responsibility and he was also given the, the opportunity to, 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 to do some hands-on coaching as well. Something that, right. that maybe not a lot of managers would have, would have trusted him with given his background. That, that's true. Uh, in fact, 
further down the line, Louis van Gaal um, was even more helpful in, in that respect, but we'll come on to that. First of all, it was Bobby Robson. Now, they met at when Bobby got the Sporting Lisbon job, and um, this guy, Manuel Fernandez, who I mentioned uh, earlier, who'd been a great centre forward, they suggested to the president, listen, this guy, Bobby Robson, he's a good coach, but uh, I don't think he speaks uh, anything apart from English. Uh, but I do know someone who speaks um, perf perfect English, very, very good English, um, who would be the ideal interpreter. His name's Jose Mourinho. And so Jose Mourinho, who had aged probably about 24, was summoned to the airport to meet Bobby Robson, the new manager of Sporting Lisbon. And Bobby Robson remembered, he said, well, this guy put out his hand and said, hello, Mr. I'm, I'm Jose Mourinho. And uh, Bobby Robson said, to me, uh, said, while I was researching the book, he said, there were two things I remembered. One was his English was fantastic this interpreter and two that he was he was very good looking he said and I so I immediately said to him on the way back to the airport I said when there are, if there are photographs at the other end don't stand next to me you'll make me look ugly <laughs> so uh, uh typical Bobby that you know but I mean it, it, he um he quickly picked up on the fact that Jose Mourinho was not just a good interpreter, but someone who understood the game. And he would give him uh, uh, scouting assignments in the sense that if they were playing Belenenses the next week, he would send Jose on the, to watch Belenenses and read his reports before preparing the team. And he said, he said, Bobby said that when he was at England, he got reports from some of the best coaches, English coaches of all. People like Dave Sexton, Howard Wilkinson. And he said this boy's reports were as good as theirs. It was unbelievable. And they were always, he said, they were always very neat. He had different colored crayons. And uh, the, his, his reports on the opposition were not only very superbly read, but uh, nicely presented as well. So, you know, he, he, he gave him, he trusted, he, he said, I, I just trusted him. And so much so that um, Bobby was sacked after really a very short time for one reason and one reason only, uh, Carlos Queiroz, um, you know, later to become uh, assistant manager at Manchester United and many other jobs as well, um, became available. And, and this guy had always fancied Carlos Queiroz. So, you know, the Bobby Robson project was abandoned so that he could get Carlos Queiroz. And um, anyway, Bobby wasn't out of work long. He, in fact, he was still in Portugal. Uh, he hadn't come home when an offer came from Porto. And he said, um, yeah, but, uh, he, well, he said, yes. But he said, um, he said, I'd like to bring an assistant um, as my interpreter. And uh, once again, Jose was doing the more than an interpreter's role. He was he, he, he was doing scouting and, uh, you know, 
he was always there at, at sessions, uh, training sessions and so on. And this uh, eventually he did very well at Porto. Bobby won two titles and uh, Bobby said Bobby was offered the Barcelona job, one of the biggest jobs in in football. And uh, they said, uh, will you take out the job as manager of Barcelona? And he said, yeah, but I want to bring an assistant from Porto called Jose Mourinho. And they said, fine, okay. And um, they were really surprised at Barcelona when they saw how much influence this young lad had on Bobby's methods and way of working. And it became, there was almost a sort of jealousy about it. You know, he, he, he you know, you will, you will have heard the story about how he was rather disparagingly known as uh, El Traductor, the, you know, the, the translator, um, when it was perfectly obvious that he was doing more than that. And then what happened after Bobby wasn't very long at Barcelona, he, he did quite well. But once again, the, 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 the ownership of the club thought they could do better. Louis van Gaal became available and Bobby was sort of kicked upstairs. Jose's reaction to this, uh, the idea was that Bobby would become general manager, director of football, blah, blah, blah. But the first team was handed over to Louis van Gaal. And uh, um, eventually, after a year, I think, yeah, this, yeah, but it's, sorry, let me, let me get this straight. It was very obvious what was happening that, you know, the first team was handed over. And that was when Jose Mourinho became outraged and said, this is a scandal. I want to leave Barcelona. And Bobby said, no, don't go. I, I, but they've, you know, they've um, betrayed you. Mister. You know, I, they, uh, Bobby probably called him by then. They've betrayed you. I, I, I don't want to see this club again. Bobby said, no, no, please just stay. And he went to Van Hal and he said, take this guy. He's brilliant. And Van Hal eventually Bobby left and uh, Van Hal could have already seen by then uh, that, that Mourinho was a brilliant man to have around the training pitch. And it was actually, this is why I said to you earlier, it was actually Van Hal that gave Mourinho real responsibility for players and I'm not me and I don't mean with all due respect Setubal's players or Belenenses players this is Barcelona this is Christo Stoichkov this is the remnants of the dream team isn't it this is um or is it the basis of the dream team <laughs> I'm trying to work out the time scale here but it, it's Stoichkov it's um, Pep Guardiola, it's, it's, it's Luis Figo, and often Van Gaal would like, you know, a lot of managers would like to just stand back a bit, and Van Gaal would say, Jose, do this session, and he'd look and he'd watch, and he'd see. but he had complete confidence that, that Mourinho could run a session with, uh, with these players, and uh, even Guardiola, who really 
even in those days, fancied himself as the most important person at the club. I mean, he was a great player. So, and he had, as we can see now, he had brilliant ideas. So he wasn't uh, too cocky for his own good. I mean, he was, he was a, even Bobby said that he, you know, that, that he was an influential man, but an intelligent one as well. You know, you, he wasn't a disruptive influence. And this was, this was another thing that Bobby said, it was very clever. Jose didn't need telling that it would be very useful for him to speak Catalan because Pep would like him, the fact that he was speaking Catalan. And if you got on with Pep, you were in. So it was, he played it very cleverly. And uh, eventually uh, Van Hal gave him control of the team for um, big games, but, but not the biggest sort of games uh, in, in the League Cup or the Catalan Cup, which was important, um, but, you know, it wasn't a classical. So, the, the, but Josie, Louis van Gaal would say, I'm going at the stand, your manager today. So he, that was probably the first teams he ever had full control of, foolish control of, were Barcelona. So, uh, it was an amazing education. I mean, Roxburgh said to me that uh, he, he had the best footballing education that any any manager ever had. And when you look at that managerial education, he's two short-term jobs in Portugal um, before he gets the mm. real big break that we're all aware of yeah. and the, the yeah. break that is forever more talked about now at, at Porto. W when he arrives at Porto, yeah. If you were, to, if any of us were to predict what he was able to achieve in those two or three seasons, you you would you would have been laughed at if you were to yes. see him make his mark on both European competitions back to back. Absolutely, it was phenomenal. And um, I mean, the the two previous jobs were um, Benfica, a very short term job and a political upheaval. So really, not worth talking about. It was very short. Um, um, and Leria, where at least he did have, I think, a season and a half, and he did well. I think they equaled the highest ever league performance. Um, and but then when when he he gets the Porto job, it just took off almost immediately. I think it was his second season won won the Portuguese league, and then. Um, you know, it's a, the phrase third season syndrome is often used in conjunction with Jose, but it, I think it was his third season when he won the Champions League. And before that, he'd won the UEFA Cup, as every Celtic fan will know. Um, that was the, the day when Celtic took a million fans <laughs> to, to Seville. It seemed like it. I was in the ground. And... Um, uh, well, uh, probably the most accurate estimate was 75,000 Celtic fans went. And of course, the ground wasn't big enough to hold all of them. But uh, uh, a great game, actually. Celtic Martin O'Neill's Celtic lost 3-2. Uh, Porto were accused of quite a bit of hopping and diving. Um, but they were the, with Deco, the star man, they were um, undoubtedly worthy winners. Then they went into the Champions League. 
and uh, and won it. Um, so it was probably the most highest upward trajectory of any manager in Europe. I certainly can't think of anything. I mean, how much, what more can you do than win the two major trophies back to back in Europe with um, a club who, well, after they won the European Cup in in the 1980s, I think it was 1987, something like that. Um, And they beat Bayern Munich, I think, in the final. I should know, because I was there. I remember the winning goal. But... uh, I think most people assumed that in the Bosman era, that kind of thing ain't going to happen again. And here was Jose Mourinho doing it. Um, they beat uh, Monaco in the final. Monaco, who'd knocked um, Ranieri's Chelsea out in the semis. And with a team with not too many stars, I mean, there were a lot of, obviously, you don't win the Champions League unless you have a lot of good players, but not too many who were stars at that time. Ricardo Carvalho, course became a great star at uh, at Chelsea Paulo Ferreira perhaps less so but he had a good, good very good career at Chelsea um uh, there there were a few others but they 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 weren't they weren't mega names you know Deco of course yeah was a big name but ended up at Barcelona and, and, and Chelsea but um they played very very good football and they were brilliantly coached they were brilliantly coached, and, and and as well as winning the the final against Monaco, everyone remembers when when they knock out Manchester United, ah, and he's he's running down the touchline, and and it's, it's interesting when you look back at that moment because you, you think of Sir Alex Ferguson, and and he's a man who most more often than not could recognise talent, and I mm. think he could recognise Mourinho and Porto as ta- as a talented side with a talented coach that evening. Yeah. And then in the, in the space of, a, they of six did. months, they, they're up against each other. They're up against each other, exactly. And, well, in fact, the first meeting, Ferguson will, will, will not remember it as well as Mourinho did. Their first meeting was at Barcelona, where I think it's something to do with a Mark Hughes transfer. Uh, maybe it was bringing him back from Barcelona, something like that. Anyway, Martin Edwards, the chairman, and another director went over. And Mourinho remembered being quite shocked that the manager, this Ferguson guy, would come along to do a deal. Because, you know, in Portugal, if there was a deal, the directors would do it and the manager would be left to look after the, the squad. But he remembers that. And he remembers Ferguson doing the negotiating, even though there were directors there, uh, or doing a lot of it anyway. And so he was very impressed by this guy. And uh, then, as, as you say, they, they come into conflict when Mourinho is manager of Porto. And, and Mourinho remembered the first leg uh, was in the, uh, what's the stadium called? Dragal. Okay. And uh, uh, Porto 1-2-1. Roy Keane was sent off for treading on... Uh, Vitor Bahia, the goalkeeper. And I think, what was his name as centre-forward? Was he South African or something? Anyway. um, Benny McCarthy. Benny McCarthy, correct. Thank you. I think Benny McCarthy got got the winner. and Or maybe both, actually. It was 2-1, going to Old Trafford. Now, if there'd been VAR... Sorry, let me tell you this first. 
Mourinho remembered that at the end of the game, Ferguson was in the referee's ear and at halftime all the time, all the way up the tunnel. And he remembers as soon as the first leg was over, this Ferguson guy was trying to influence the second leg. And he gave a press conference, Ferguson, apparently, in which he said, he almost said, you know, Porto, they're one of the big clubs in Portugal. They're used to buying referees and all this kind of stuff. Fairly incendiary stuff. And, uh, but he was, you know, trying to get into the referee's head. He was hoping probably that it would get to the referee for the second leg. Anyway, the second leg, if, if that was what he was doing, it, it, it didn't work because in the second leg, this is what I'm talking about, VAR, that had VAR, United would have been 2-0 up by the time Costinha got the away goal because uh, in the last minute, because uh, Paul Scholes uh, scored a second goal that was three yards onside. But because he timed his run, the linesman got it wrong and, and flagged. So there, that, that meant that one goal would, <clears throat> would settle it. And somebody tried a shot from about 25 yards in the last minute. Tim Howard parried it. Costinha tucked it under him. And that was... Porto knew they were through, and that's when Mourinho did his run down the touchline in the coat, and I think he might have done a knee slide, you know, uh, in an expensive coat. Um, but uh, there we go. And it, it, I mean, we, especially those of us who'd followed, who'd been to the final with Celtic the last year, we knew this was one of the brightest young managers in Europe. Um, but after the after those celebrations at Old Trafford, everyone in Britain knew who Jose Mourinho was. And um, in a way, I remember thinking Chelsea were, it was known that Chelsea were, or Chelsea denied it, but it was known that they were going to get rid of Ranieri. And that I can remember the final, the, the European Champions League final, it, between Jose and Didier Deschamps, who was the manager of Monaco, and it seemed almost like a playoff for the Chelsea job. Um, and sure enough, uh, at the press conference after the game, uh, I think he, I think Mourinho was asked about the Chelsea job, but and in fact, he he, he walked into it about two days later. When Mourinho arrived in England, you were. Uh, covering uh, football at the, the highest level week in, week out. Uh -huh. What did you make of his comment about the, the special one? Because that's that's been well, synonymous with him ever since. Yeah, well, I, I was, I think I was at the press conference. Uh, uh, I, I, I think I was there. I was certainly at, at I think that might have been for the um, broadcast media and, and we we were we went into a separate, more textured, more deep conversation, and I remember during that. Before we get on to the special one, I remember during the written media conference, he he, he said, "You know, I'll I'll never." Uh, somebody said, "Will you be going for these terrific players who won you the Champions League at Porto?" He said, "No, nah, no." Nah. He says. He says it's a sign of weakness to do that. He says it's like a kid. But, but uh, he said Van Hal did it. Barcelona, buying all the Dutch players that he knew. 
So for me, it's like going on holiday. It's like you're a teenager. You go on holiday with your parents. You know, it's unadventurous, blah, blah, blah. And within a, a year, he'd signed, signed uh, Carvalho, uh, the other guy, uh, Deco, <laughs> Deco, um, a goalkeeper. I can't remember his name. I've forgotten. And uh, Tiago. Uh, who wasn't from his club, but was also from Portugal. So he signed about four or five Portuguese. So he'd he'd gone on holiday with these parents. But uh, anyway, that was by the by. The special one, I heard it, and I've always th thought it's a misquote when people call him the special one. Um, he he, long since gave up trying to say, I said, I'm a special one, not the special one, because the special one has sort of, religious connotations, almost like you're saying, oh, I'm, you know, I'm the Messiah, you know, um, which he wasn't saying, he, he, he was more or less, what he was trying to say was, look, please don't treat me like somebody who's, you got cotton wool behind the ears, I'm, you know, I've won the European Cup, I'm, I'm not out of a, he actually said, I'm not out of a bottle, I'm a special one, you know, and presumably what he meant was I'm I'm not fake tan I'm a real you know I'm a real tan you know I'm the real thing, I think that's what he meant I'm the real thing, but he didn't he didn't mean I'm I'm the new Messiah but it, it suits us to use it and I think even he in the end he's got a tendency towards uh, playing the part of a bloke called Jose Mourinho, and uh, I think in the end he thought oh come on if that's what they want. We'll include it in the act. And when when he said, "Well, obviously the quote, I, I, I am a special one," and, and this special one is obviously what is used. Yeah. The yeah, the, yeah. the two seasons, the first two seasons at Chelsea, <laughs> he, he was the special one in the sense yes. that even Sir Alex references the fact that at times Manchester United, with all of his great sides, had a tendency to sometimes be slow at the traps, and then over the course of the season, power their way through. This mm. Chelsea team sure. came sprinting out of the, oh, of the traps absolutely. like nobody else's business. Absolutely. They were, they were very, they, uh, for some reason, they had a, in the early weeks under Mourinho, they developed a reputation. The first game was against United, against Ferguson's United. They won 1-0. It was a dull game. And there were a lot of 1-0s and maybe a couple of nil nils and, and they got a reputation for being dull. And it was almost as if he'd said, dull. I'll give you a dull. They started winning every game 4-1. And they were relentless. Do you know, I think, Callum, that that Chelsea team with which he won the league in those two seasons uh, was possibly one the most underrated champion of England that I can remember. I'm not saying the best, um, although I would put them in the envelope um, definitely but they were definitely the, 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 the one that we've kind of taken for granted they were absolute as you say they were relentless and they were they were fast and they were fit they were brilliantly um, coached not only tactically and a, a lot of tactical things came in I mean 4-3-3 which you know hadn't Alf Ramsey won the World Cup with 4-3-3, but it hadn't been wildly popular. In fact, it was probably 
people felt, you know, we really want to commit three men to a front line. You know, four four two was the default position for most coaches, and uh, he brought in the he brought in four three three, and that um, is still, you know, a lot of people write down a team in four three three formation now, don't they? And and, that, and how long ago was that? Nearly you know, 17 years ago, 18 years ago. So, um, you know, there, there were tactical things or technical things. And, and the other thing would be mass substitution. Uh, at one, where was it? He, he made three subs at halftime with no injuries involved. Unheard of, unheard of. He said he'd learned it from Bobby Robson who'd done it once in, 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 in Barcelona, but, uh, and rescued a game. Um, but it certainly wasn't in the managerial handbook here, but, but he was, he showed himself willing to do it. Um, at one stage, I think he even subbed somebody before half time. but, um, yeah, so there were, there was, there were those kind of technical things, but a key factor I thought was the way they prepared physically. Um, I don't know, you know, I, I don't, I don't know because I don't go to training, but I suspect that a lot of teams train at match pace now. Um, you often see it in this in the start of games. The 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 pace that the balls moved around is, um, is quite bewildering, um, and I think a lot of teams train at match pace now. Under with um, Jose Mourinho and his assistant Rui Faria, they did that all the time at Chelsea. Sometimes they only train for an hour. Um, or less, because they were training at such pace, and um, so there, there were a lot of things that he he brought to the game that were exciting and new and worked. I mean, if you add brilliant uh, managerial methodology to um, the fact that Chelsea were by then able to afford, um, you know pretty well any player they wanted or at least the bid for pretty well any player they wanted and that they already had um well the homegrown John Terry as as leader and and one of you know Mourinho's first decisions was to confirm uh, Terry even though he was probably only about 21 at the time as the team's captain and leader um and Frank Lampard of course so they the the, all the ingredients were there and, and Mourinho made the most of them. When you consider the points total of 95 points, I mean, a lot of, a lot of people have talked about Pep Centurions and, and Liverpool getting up to, to sort of 97, 98 points, both incredible achievements, but yeah. he hit 95 points in that first season and he yep. won the league conceding only 15 goals, which... That's right. Which now, now, I mean, Liverpool conceded seven in a game this season and they were an all-conquering <laughs> side. I mean, it just it just puts into context how fabulous uh, an achievement that is. That's a very good point, actually. There's another thing as well. If you, I don't know if you have the, the English league table at the moment, uh, uh, but Manchester City, I haven't scored prolifically this season. They certainly have conceded more than 15 goals but it'd be interesting to know their goals for as opposed uh, as compared with goals against now that a champion team in England might have a two to one advantage over the opposition aggregated 
uh, it's quite unusual to be three three over three to one. There are some teams that have done it, um, but there's only one that, as far as I know, in the modern era that's ever equaled Chelsea's five one. Their, their, their superiority over the opposition averaged out at 5-1. Um, so that's an example of how good they were. And, and as you say, a lot of the credit of that goes to, you know, this phenomenal defence marshalled by Terry, who, who, whose combination with Ricardo Carvalho was just unbelievable. And the, the thing about it was that they, they could both play. They weren't just uh, two rock-solid defenders. They they could uh, they could both pass the ball out of defence beautifully, uh, and, and in Carvalho's case, could run it out of defence. There, there were it was a it was a lovely sight, and and we probably didn't appreciate it enough at the time. Uh, they had they had width through the, having a front three, you know, with um, with well, Drogba had just come and wasn't an instant hit. Um, but I and I suppose uh, Crespo would be playing some of the time and so on. But but it, the winger the wingers were terrific. Damien Duff, Joe Cole, um, they they had they had real real width there. Uh, it was and and of course with Frank Lampard's was Frank Lampard was almost like a second striker. So you know no problem scoring either. The second season, and the fact that it was very impressive the first season with the defensive record, with the points total, with the manner mm. of victory, to go mm. and retain it again was mm. was an incredible achievement. And, and Sir Alex Ferguson has again talked about that being a relief for him, where he thought, "I don't really know if my Manchester United side can compete with this. If he mm. if he if he plans on building a dynasty here, this could be this could be really really tricky." That's right. Yeah, I mean Ferguson, I think. There was a sort of sense. I think one thing about Ferguson is that he he knows when he's beaten in in, in football matches, you know. And, and and he, I think he felt I've got a real battle on my hands. It's it's amazing, really, when you look at um, even in his I was going to say dotage in his latter period, you know. Um, along come the challenges of of Abramovich. Is Chelsea and the Abu Dhabi-backed Manchester City? <laughs> you certainly couldn't say that um, that he was ever given an easy ride, Ferguson. But uh, yeah, the the Chelsea one looked. I mean, I can remember saying, um, you know, when if if people asked, you know, I can remember saying, well, you know, Ferguson's been overshadowed. I mean, this guy's won as much as him. In half the time, you know, it's uh, if you take in a few years, you know, he'd won won the European Cup, the UEFA Cup, the two English titles, you know, League Cup, uh, FA Cup, I think. Anyway, whatever, he was just winning everything, and um, the way you know for Ferguson to to come back from that outlast not only outlast Mourinho, but I think when three titles in a row, something like that. Wow. No wonder even Mourinho called Ferguson the, the daddy of us all, you know. Um, but, but at that time, 
all we knew was that Mourinho was the thing. Uh, there was no manager in in the world, you know, that, that could that could could beat him in a one to one in terms of trophies won per seasons managed. The only thing that really eluded him at Chelsea was the the Champions League or, or the European Cup. Something that really frustrated him and, and many of the fans with the the battles that they had with Liverpool during that era. Yeah, the true. way the way it ends at Chelsea, <laughs> typical you could say Mourinho type fashion, as we've become mm. accustomed to for most of his jobs. The, the communications appear to break down. Andrei Shevchenko's transfer was was highlighted yeah. as a potential trigger. That leads yeah. him to go from London to Milan and when he goes yeah. to Milan just like he did in England he did not look back and seals that historic treble with the yeah. European Cup in tow as well mm, yeah absolutely at, at, uh, you know the advantages were there at, at Milan Inter had done well I think under uh, Mancini Mancini yes uh, so um, and 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 the club was probably the richest in Italy at that time, which isn't always the case with Inter, but um, the most muscular financially. And um, so Mourinho chose well. He had a very happy time there. Um, they, you know, the facilities are sensational um, up at the training ground at a, a village outside a village called Appiano Gentile, uh, near the Swiss border. I think he almost lived in Switzerland, you know, up in the mountains, and it was a it was a wonderful way of life, and and the players adored him. Uh, Abr- uh, Abramovich, I, I nearly said, um, uh, but no, the Swiss, the, the Swedish guy, what's he called? Ibrahimovic. Ibrahimovic, Slatan. You know, adored him. Marco Materazzi, the centre back, the one who got nutted by Zidane, and uh, and. Um, you know, it, it was a really, really good side, and and they ended up beating his old boss Louis Van Gaal to win the Champions League uh, at uh, the ground of his next employers, which was Real Madrid. They were so they were in Madrid. Uh, they 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 beat uh, Bayern Munich, managed by Louis Van Gaal, and beat them well, and. Uh, after the game, uh, there were some very poignant scenes where the players, there was a film actually, somebody must have used a phone to film Matarazzi remonstrating with Mourinho saying, come on the coach with us and don't leave, don't leave. Um, but it was known by then that his next job would be Real Madrid and uh, and leave he did. But. By then, he'd become one of very, very few managers to win the, the European Cup or Champions League with two different clubs, although he'd not done it with Chelsea. He'd, he'd done it everywhere else. He'd done it at Porto, and he'd now done it at Inter as well. So um, his name then became part of, uh, part of Euro- European history. The, the, the fact that he won the treble, which of course Manchester United fans will always remind other English fans about, um, really was was an incredible achievement. Obviously, mm-hmm. in the continent, it's it's it's, it's been done a few more times than it has been in England, but mm-hmm. still an incredible achievement. He goes to Madrid, 
and it's incredible how the soap opera of football always unites to give us the best story. So yeah. we have Mourinho versus Guardiola. We have Madrid versus Barcelona. We know that he was at Barcelona. And as you as you said earlier, there, there always was, even though he was, there was an element of respect, there was still always the air of the translator. Well, oh, this, was yeah. the, this was the opportunity <laughs> for him to, oh. to really show them who was boss. Yes, absolutely. And by then, of course, he had the vindication of his pedigree as a manager. Now he wasn't going to take any um, disparagement, for want of a better word I was about to use, from from Barcelona or anybody else. And um, yeah, he felt he was now on equal terms. The gloves were off. And the, the, the games against Barcelona were bitter, bitter, bitter games. And uh, he knew against the team containing Messi and Xavi and Yesta, you know, you could go on, um, that he wasn't going to out-football them, even with Cristiano Ronaldo and initially Mesut Ozil. But, you know, you're talking about the soap opera. The one you did, his first fight was, was it in, internal because Jorge Valdano, the old, the old Argentine player who played with Maradona in the 86 final and who had remained a, a sort of almost permanent fixture at, at Real Madrid, always being asked by the chairman, you know, what do we do? And, and Valdano, a, a, a great esthete, you know, a lover of the art of football. And when this sort of pragmatist Mourinho comes in, it, you know, um, there is... Ooh, it, it crackles, the air crackles. And uh, so Mourinho had to win a wee political battle there before he could settle down at Real Madrid. And then no sooner had he won the league with uh, a, a big goals total, because uh, that, even then there was the pragmatism, there was the argument with Valdano, you know, will, will they play the expansive Real Madrid way? Well, he broke... Uh, a goals for record set in the time of John Toshak, um, which seemed to answer that. But then um, the uh, the next um, w while he was you know fighting with with Guardiola and often losing because Guardiola's Barcelona with Messi you know that had too much for him, and and sometimes there were there were really nasty games where Pepe would. Uh, be sent out to kick Messi off the park and and, and all this kind of stuff and um, and 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 Guardiola would lose his temper and use four-letter words at press conferences and so on and and as time went on another fight started because this uh, then Mourinho falls out with the players now when you fall out with the the homebred players guys like uh, Iker Casillas. And uh, and Sergio Ramos, you know the ones who traditionally, the ones who grew up in, in the same way as Pep Guardiola, was more than a player at at Barcelona. These guys are more than a player at, at Real Madrid, and he, you, you don't fall out with them if you're Real Madrid manager. It's just better not to, and and Jose managed to. So uh, it was. Uh, yeah, it it fed it fed the the Spanish love of soap opera and and of course fed us because by now we were following 
him and Guardiola in in the press back here. The title success, record points, total records, gold scored as well, as you say, answered a lot of the, the pragmatic arguments that had been placed at his at his door. The, the rivalry between him and, between him and Guardiola. I'm, I'm 25 years old, and mm-hmm. for me, Ferguson and Wenger always had a, a strong rivalry, yeah. and yeah. even Mourinho and Wenger. But in my lifetime, I, I could be, people might listen and scoff at this, but for me, that era of Mourinho at Madrid, Guardiola at Barcelona seemed to be the most bitter. An even yeah. draining battle for both men. I mean, Guardiola, I think many people look at him and the sabbatical he took was was partly caused by that constant fight with Josie and Real Madrid. This, I, I agree with that analysis. I mean, it, it, I suppose the Nadia was reached when Mourinho poked uh, uh, Villa, Tito Villanova, the late, uh, sadly, um, and greatly lamented. Tito Villanova, who was then um, the assistant to Guardiola and 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 later became his successor briefly before he died of cancer. But he, um, you know, poking him in the eye. I mean, it's one thing to use, uh, you know, disparagement and, and, and insult, but uh, you know that was that was a terrible thing to see and. Um, that was why later, to digress slightly later, um, I was I was on some uh, TV pro uh, this Sky one, you know, Sunday supplement, something like that, and uh, and somebody said, what, "What do you think of Mourinho going back to going to Manchester United?" I said, "Well, it's a job he's always wanted, but I'll tell you something: Pep Guardiola's heart will have sunk." at the thought of this, you know, of this kind of shenanigans going on. Uh, never being able to go into a press conference without having Mourinho's latest piece of trouble stirring put at him. I honestly felt that would be the case. You know, I've, I've, I felt that Guardiola would have gone on, on not him, please, please. Um, uh, and and of course the city fans uh, took gave me pelters you know jocular pelters for years after that uh, of course as as Pep piled trophy upon trophy and Jose got sacked but uh, yeah it was that uh, it was all based on that terrible classical rivalry in in uh, in Madrid and Barcelona but anyway uh, I, I think. Pep seems to have survived. The Champions League again eludes him at Real Madrid. Yeah. He returns to Chelsea. He refers to himself as the happy one. Um, yeah. as, as you mentioned, though, it's important to stress that the departure from Real Madrid, it wasn't exactly amicable in the sense that I think the players were glad to see the back of him. I think by yes. the end, he was glad to see the back of Real Madrid as well. And yes. Chelsea seemed like, like, I suppose, the obvious option when it appeared that he wouldn't be the next Manchester United manager. You mm. were there, Paddy, the same as, as mm. many other journalists when he famously said the best team lost in Ferguson's last season. Do you yeah. believe he really wanted to be the man to replace Ferguson straight away yes. in 2013? Uh, uh, I, I, I don't think it would have daunted him. I, I think uh, it daunted David Moyes only in one sense. 
that David Moyes knew that he was taking over at a bad time. One, because it was immediately after Ferguson. Two, because he didn't, he thought the squad was very much flattered by having won the title in Ferguson's final season. And I think that's true. He, he didn't think it was as good as it looked. I mean, I can remember thinking, what's he moaning about? There's great young players like Ad, Adnan Yarisai. <laughs> You know, so <laughs> just as well, just as well. I wasn't in charge of Man United, but they, they, uh, they, the, so this David could see that the squad wasn't quite as good as it might have thought it was. There were one or two figures at the club getting to us the kind of age where they don't want change when they're aging and their gigs, for example, it was already finished, but. Um, there were a lot of recently finished players like Scholes who, you know, they, uh, the players very quickly <laughs> turn into Victor Meldruth. Sometimes they, you know, they, they veer away from it, but they, they can be quite reactionary at that stage in their life. So there were a lot of influences conspiring against Moyes, but I, and, and so that, that was what don't, he's not usually the dauntable sort, but I think he realistically could see that. I don't think Mourinho would have been daunted at all if things had gone wrong for him as quickly as they did for David Moyes. I think he would have his reaction would have been, "Well, that's Man United's loss. I did my best." You know, it's. I think, looking back on it, it probably would have been the time, but there was opposition from. There was opposition to his playing style and possibly to his ego from Sir Bobby Charlton, although this was denied, but it was, there was no doubt that it, it was true. Uh, in the same way as Matt Busby had not thought that Brian Clough was the kind of man uh, for Manchester United. <clears throat> so there was opposition there. The, the Manchester United didn't want a manager who behaved as if he was bigger than the club. Um, so I think there was there were genuine reasons why, but 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 anyway, Mourinho did want it. There's no no no, no doubt about that, and he did. So to that extent, I, I suppose Chelsea was well. It was Chelsea was not what I wanted, but it's not bad. It's it's a good job. I've had it before. Um, they still had the house, Mr. and Mrs. Mourinho still had that, uh, you know, the, they lived uh, still in, I think it was central London at that time, though he did buy a house near the training ground in Surrey as well. So I, I, I thought it would, it would work the second time at Chelsea, but, uh, but it didn't. There was the success of a Premier League title that he managed to win again, his third Premier League title in total. Oh, yeah, uh, sorry, I meant it didn't eventually. No, yeah, of course, was, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and as you say, I think that there was a period of, you would have to call it now, relative success, followed yeah. by worryingly sharp decline. Do you yeah. Something that's been talked about before by journalists in Spain and, and analysts of Spanish football they believe that since Madrid, he's looked like a bruised man because yeah. the way the Matarazzi's of the world reacted to him, that wasn't the case when he left Madrid at all. Yes, and it was the, the case at Chelsea. Uh, I can remember um, 
an expert on human behavior, a great man, a great author called uh, Desmond Morris, uh, told me that Mourinho, uh, I think when Chelsea beat Barcelona quite early in some, one of huge European match, I'm sure it was against Barcelona, quite early in Mourinho's first period, that Terry had run up behind him and jumped on his shoulders as if he was jumping on another player and beat his chest, you know, in celebration. And and Morris made the point that that this was that 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 Terry was treating Mourinho as a teammate, not as the boss. And I think that was true at Inter. I think they felt he was their friend as well as their their leader and boss. Um, but that the the Real Madrid experience was very very different, and um, so I, I I hadn't actually heard that theory, Callum, but it does hold water, and it's certainly true um, that since then uh, he's he's been more a bit more vulnerable. Um, there have been other factors. He, you know, we might be going slightly ahead of ourselves now, but when. When he finally did get to Manchester United, he was without, um, you know, we talked earlier about the method of training at Chelsea. And, and at that time, Rui Faria, his number, his, well, I think he was called, phys, initially called physical trainer, but physical and technical are all in one in the Mourinho method. And uh, I, you know, Rui Faria wasn't there, and, and, and in trying to look out other reasons for, other than the the Marie, Madrid bruising, um, I've thought that the loss of Rui Faria was probably crucial. Maybe he didn't move with the times in the same way as uh, you know we mentioned Alex Ferguson quite a lot. Alex Ferguson, despite you know coming over as a crusty old traditionalist, has. Uh, was never slow to to move with the times, and uh, maybe maybe Mourinho need needed to reinvent himself a bit a bit more, particularly after the loss of of Rui Faria. In terms of Manchester United, you're right. The sharp decline at Chelsea was was really unbelievable. It, it remarkably, though, does lead to him getting the job that he's always wanted, he's always coveted in yeah. that Manchester United job. And and you mentioned earlier the, the aspect of Pep Guardiola going in at Manchester City. You might disagree with me with this, but I felt that the main reason Mourinho got the Manchester United job was because Pep got the City job. I could be totally off with that, but <laughs> that's just the I, reaction that I had at the time. Yeah, I remember, you know... But, putting my journalistic hat on and thinking, wow, this is fantastic. This is that classical uh, drama uh, in our own shores, you know, within our own shores. Um, unfortunately, Messi and Ronaldo didn't come along with them. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, I, I was excited about it at first. I didn't realize that it actually was a no contest by then. Um, and that, uh, you know, maybe Mourinho's best um, had gone. And that this guy who was the fastest climber um, had also, without our realising it, certainly without <laughs> Daniel Levy or Ed Woodward re realising it, had, uh, 
had been the fastest faller as well. In terms you know, of the, 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 the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Absolutely. And, and in terms of Manchester United, another interesting well, an aspect I find particularly interesting when he had Zlatan Ibrahimovic there, who you could say was one of the old school, obviously he'd worked with him before. He was one yeah. of the old school Matarazzi type footballers, yeah. mm-hmm. um, the, the decos, the, the Carvalhos that would run through brick walls for him. When he was right. there, he wins the Europa League, he wins the League Cup. Mm. Ibrahimovic stays on for half of a second season. He's injured, he leaves. When mm. he loses him, when he loses Faria, it seemed to just completely cave in in itself when that, he had that, to deal with the big personalities. You could, I don't mean on his own, because of course he had staff with him, but maybe more more often than he would have liked when he had Faria with him. He had to deal with obviously Paul Pogba. He had to deal mm. with others. And when he had to, well, it appears when he had to take on more of a responsibility in dealing with those players face-to-face, it just didn't seem to work. The relationship with Pogba in particular it seemed to, and if you listen to Paul Pogba's recent comments, seemed to seem to fall apart at a dramatic rate. It, it seemed to be almost overnight, almost. Yeah, I think I think it was unfortunate he didn't bin bin Pogba because it, you know it was it was one or the other. I mean Pogba. I think I think Solskjaer has succeeded despite Pogba rather than because of Pogba. Although Pogba's relationship with Solskjaer. Is obviously a lot better, and I'm not denying, by the way, that that Pogba is 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 a phenomenally, breathtakingly talented footballer. But uh, managers have to work an awful lot on on his attitude, on his uh, and and where to fit him into a team. And uh, uh, you know, I think probably most of his managers have spent as much time on dealing with Paul Pogba and his agent as as dealing with the rest of the squad but that's you know that that's not that's not the whole reason at all uh, um uh, there were there were other reasons you said you know despite having men around him but how committed they were to Mourinho succeeding is another matter and I don't believe that's wholly their fault I don't mean there's a load of traitors um, working against Mourinho, um, I, I just think the relationships with the people around him didn't really work. He was living in a hotel, which is not a good look. It really isn't. And um, he just never seemed happy. The, the classic case, I suppose, was when he won one of those trophies that you alluded to. They beat Southampton in the final of the League yes. Cup. And, and 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 if you look at the pictures at the end with the United players celebrating and Mourinho's at the end, and you would have thought he'd have lost not only the League Cup, but, you know, all his money had been nicked at halftime. I mean, it, it just <laughs> looked miserable. I think, oh, I, I I think the, miserable. the aspect of him living in the hotel is, is definitely one that, that intrigued so many, and I think rightly so, because... Which f- first is season, why we thought it would all be all right when he goes... To Tottenham. Well, as you say, one one year maybe okay. Then as it went on, he loses his job. As you say, it falls pretty sharply. Old Trafford. But one of the things that he came out with in, a, in an advert for a company we won't mention, he said that the second place achievement with Manchester United was up there with his biggest achievement in football. And the joke he mm. makes is all uh, all successes aren't aren't recognised. And I yeah. think and I wonder if Daniel Levy 
was was drawn in by that. He was drawn in by the past successes of Chelsea. Um, I mm-hmm. suppose the second time was a sharp decline, but he still won the Premier League. Milan, um, obviously Porto, Manchester United. They weren't what you would call major trophies in, in no. Manchester United terms, but trophies nonetheless. And mm-hmm. I just wonder if that comment about... I got 82 points, I think it was, with yeah. with this Manchester United team. That was a great success. I just wonder yeah. if Levy thought maybe that was a great success, that was a poor team, and if I yep. bring him here and I give him Kane and I give him Son and we maybe back him a little, maybe he could deliver as a title. Maybe, yep. I just think that might have been what drew him in. I think what you, what you have to bear in mind with Levy is that, and this is to Levy's credit, that he backed his own judgment. He'd been, I'd, I think he'd tried, he definitely tried once. I think he tried for Mourinho twice before. So this was Levy, you know, not floundering. This was him knowing exactly what he wanted. And he thought when he finally got him, uh, I mean, I think most most neutrals wanted it to work. But it was... You know, it was it, it 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 was short and not not very seldom sweet. The football was was static, lacking in the kind of fluidity that had been their um, trademark under Pochettino. Uh, the, the the liberation of Son um, and Kane in particular. Um, the defense was all over the place. It, you know, two fullbacks that couldn't defend. Um, it just the the, the 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 players weren't there. There were Pochettino's players, and they were. It, it was as if they were playing with a "we don't want to be here" sign around their necks, really, or we we don't want him to be here. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying there was any um, animosity. But there wasn't the kind of camaraderie, philosophical um, uh, unity that that had been the mark. I mean, it was a hard job following Pochettino. I wasn't sure, you know, you're never quite sure how good a manager is till you see what happens when he's not there, you know. And um, and it, it it was. It was just too big a change of philosophy. Um, bring it, bringing in Mourinho. I, I wanted it to work because I'd always said, you know, if he could be happy back in London with the right club, um, that it would work. And uh, and it, it just didn't. I mean, the the football was just, it just it was anti Spurs. If 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 they'd won trophies, I think most Spurs fans would have said, we don't have to play. Like Bill Nicholson's Danny Blanche Flower, you know, and all that. Um, we don't have to play like like that every week if we're winning. If we're winning trophies, if they're winning one trophy a season, the Arsenal are winning none. I think they would have said, "To hell with it. These are bring it on." But they didn't, and never looked like it. And just just on that, one of the things that you said earlier um, about Manchester United potentially taking him on after Sir Alex retired was. Sir Bobby Charlton, members of the Manchester United board, Sir Alex probably himself, didn't want a manager to come in who was bigger than the, than the club. Do you think part of the reason Daniel Levy acted now 
ahead of a cup final was because he didn't want that cup final, if Spurs won, to become Mourinho's achievement rather than Tottenham's? You're asking me to be a psychologist. My, my assumption, and I would put this as a counter theory, and I'll leave it up to you to decide. My assumption was that Daniel Levy had a choice. Do we send out this team? And if they go behind, they've lost. Or do we send out a team under Ryan Mason who will have the yoke of a manager that they didn't believe in taken away from them? And Ryan Mason say, look, come on, boys, play with freedom, blah, blah, blah. But, and that might have worked if they hadn't been playing Man City on a day when Man City played like Man City. Um, you know, okay, the only one one nil, but it could have been 6-2. So um, that was just a bit unfortunate. I think he took the gamble. He said, look, I've got two choices. Do I go on black or red? And he went on, whatever he went on was, was the Ryan Mason chip. And I, I mean, that was my guess that he simply said, what gives us more chance of winning this game? He might even have said to Harry Kane, what gives us more chance of winning this game? Um, we don't know. Ask, get Harry Kane on next week. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the million dollar question, Paddy, just to, just to finish off, what next for Jose Mourinho? He's won major titles in Portugal. He's won major titles in, in, in England, Italy, Spain. He's won the European Cup with two different sides. He's won a, a plethora of um, yeah. domestic cups as well. Do you think he can re-emerge in, in another, in a major European league with a major force, or do you think he's maybe going to have to scale back his ambition, maybe return to domestic Portuguese football, or even look at international football? Where could he go next? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking the romantic in me thinks a project in England might work. Um, when I say a project, I mean Newcastle, um, a club with great potential um, a, a wonderful crowd um, a sort of Porto you know a club that have a history that's small and and a while ago but can be revived you know and I mean I'm, I'm just plucking Newcastle out of the air because he nearly went you know he he probably would have gone to Newcastle if Bobby Robson had asked him, um, but didn't feel that didn't feel that Bobby would move over quickly. And he was right there. I think if Bobby had said, "I'll I'll do one year and then you can take over at Newcastle," that might have happened. You know, um, so a project, something like that, a massive club who can be brought back in the same way that Bielsa's brought back Leeds or in the same way that um, that Wolves have come back or in the same way that, that you know, maybe Sunderland will come back. And uh, that, kind of, that kind of club with potential, I think that would be something that 
but to be realistic, I think your other options are more, are, are better. Um, go go to Germany or, or Spain or um, you know um, a, a national team job might well suit him. But uh, I read Jamie Carragher's column in the Telegraph recently, where it, where he where he talked about he talked with great respect of about Mourinho. He said whatever happens, you can't take away the first decade of the third millennium and say that Jose Mourinho wasn't the manager of that decade, 21 to 2001 to 2010. He was the manager of the decade by a mile. And you'll never be able to take that away. Um, but whether you could ever get Jose Mourinho to see it in you know, to to relax and see it in those terms. Enjoy international management. You you can. Um, Roy Hodgson's enjoyed it a, a, a few times, and uh, and would would quietly tell you that there are a lot of yeah. You of course you want to be hands on with the players all the time, but it's rather nice to be able to go with your wife to a tour of uh, art galleries in Italy during. Um, you know, during a time when there's no international football, there are big compensations. So, uh, I don't know, but I'll be very interested uh, to find out. And although we have a manager at Dundee at the moment, um, <laughs> I would say, Jose, you know, always give us a ring just in case. <laughs> in case James McPake goes to um, Barcelona. Brilliant. What a way to end it. Um, Mourinho is a fascinating character and, and in terms of yourself, Patty, you know how you know how much respect I've got for you and thanks once again for joining me. Thanks. And by the way, I've got a lot of respect for James McPake. So <laughs> I was only kidding. <laughs>